Welcome to the Engineering Influence Podcast presented by the American Council of Engineering Companies. Today, we're talking about the red-hot mergers and acquisitions market in the engineering industry with Steve Guido, a principal at ROG Partners, which provides corporate advisory services for firms in the design services industry. Steve recently presented a top-notch ACEC online class on the current state of the M&A market, looking at both larger economic trends and the individual firm issues. And I recommend that you check it out. We've included a link to the class in the show notes. For today's discussion, we're gonna talk about some of the key points that he addressed in that class. Steve, thanks for coming on the program. Jerry, great to have me here uh, with you and your audience. Appreciate it. So um, given the, the, the oddity of the last couple of years and, and the aberrant business conditions caused by COVID-19, are, are buyers discounting the high profits that uh, engineering firms have enjoyed over the past couple of years? Well, that's that's a great initial question, and you're exactly right. It has been a uh, quite a quite a challenge for buyers today assessing and analyzing engineering firms' uh, financial and operational performance uh, when you look at at life before COVID and performance during COVID. Uh, you had companies that um, had operations uh, that 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 came to a halt. They had projects put on hold. They took PPP dollars. Uh, they they saved money. Uh, they they were in kind of an emergency mode for a couple of quarters, um, and to some degree, uh, coming out of that, a lot of the benefits flow to the bottom line. So um, most industry surveys have shown that our industry has really kind of hit a peak profit cycle. Um, if you look at at twenty and and, and uh, two thousand twenty and two thousand twenty one. So when, when buyers are coming in and kind of trying to understand and assess this scenario of Target's performance, I, I think that they are relatively sympathetic to it. Uh, I don't think they are discounting it. I don't think they're giving them more uh, a credit for it. Um, still with many engineering firms with the cost structure, it's mostly a labor-driven model. It's rent, it's, it's, it's other big buckets of operating expenses. The savings that might have been there from uh, saving money on conferences or ink toner cartridges or whatever it have been for a year or so um, are, are, are important, but not necessarily super impactful to the bottom line with a lot of professional service firms. So um, I, I would say that they are not necessarily discounting the high profits, but I think as the industry and country gets back to normal and earnest this year, that's going to be a question as to whether those profit margins can generally be sustainable. And I think it'll be a blend of strong revenue backlogs coming into the year, which is, which is a, a, a strength offsetting potentially higher operating costs of going back to normal and perhaps some of the um, impacts of inflation um, in our in our labor force. Yeah, um, I mean, looking at it from the other side, um, you could, uh, you know, engineering firm balance sheets are very strong right now. Um, revenues are high. Yep. Um, utilization rates are high. Yep. Um, are, are firms commanding a high high price? Well, and and yes, so so that, that's a good question too. And um, we we get that all the time here at ROG. Are, are kind of what are the multiples we tend to see paid for companies in our space? Are they higher or lower? Uh, uh, typically, uh, for buyers today, this has been a story of what I call CNC, uh, capitalization and confidence. So you have record levels of executive confidence. We just saw this from some of the results that ACEC released last week. Um, in addition to very strong balance sheets. 
with, with, I would say, record low interest rates as well. So this has been a very fertile market to go out and make acquisitions today for a lot of organizations today that have record backlog and they're, and they're, and they're struggling to grow in incrementally with, 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 with labor shortages. Um, so yes, in some instances, we have seen industry valuation multiples tick up. Uh, and, now, and now that depends on the um, types of work they're doing, Jerry, the size of the firm, um, if it's a strategic buyer, if it's a private equity buyer, if it's a publicly traded buyer, all of them have different price structures to some degree when they come in and looking at targets. But yes, the valuations have ticked up a little bit, certainly during this uh, pandemic time, which is almost a, an oddity when you kind of think about it. it certainly is, yes. <laughs> um over the past several years, we've heard a lot about uh, acquisitions being made um, to uh, to make the, the the acquired firm more um, efficient. Um, you know, two companies merge or one is acquired, and then they they uh, cut out the fat and they've got a better firm. But you know, as, as we mentioned, utilization rates are at an all time high. Does that mean that firms are 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 basically at a theoretical peak efficiency and, and that, that buyers might not be able to get anything more out of a, out of a merger acquisition? Well, I, I think you raise a good question into kind of where are the true synergies in blending two professional service firms together? Um, and, and how can you make one plus one equal three of two firms that are generally of disparate processes and sizes and cultures and governance and clients, uh, how, how can you make that work together? And I would say in most cases, the, the expense synergies have always been the easy ones to, to, to find. Let's, you know, if we have two offices in Boston or we have two offices in Las Vegas, can we merge them together? Are there HR benefit systems or IT systems that we can meld? Um, are there any duplications in staffing that, that might uh, kind of be wrung out over time. Although I will tell you, most good buyers say are not coming into this to try to save a couple of points with 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 um, you know kind of letting people go in a tight market like this. Uh, so so the other part of it is where can we find revenue synergy? So and and those tend to be a little bit more elusive. Um, most companies talk about well, we'd like to get your services with our clients or bring a new set of clients to yours. And and I often just see you know years into an integration that takes. Time Time, to share clients, to share Rolodexes, work on collaborative projects together. That's often a little bit of a, of a, of a longer marathon where the expenses are, are, are a little bit of a, of, a, of a quick sprint out of the gate. So I don't know how many firms are trying to make their targets more efficient. I think in most cases, it's, it's can we make them better? Um, smaller firms often don't have managerial, financial, recruiting resources like larger firms do. So I think in most cases, larger companies are coming in and really trying to uh, relieve administrative burdens off a lot of owners typically that are doing payroll and benefits and accounting and, and uh, health uh, insurance uh, uh, reviews every year. So I think that's generally been, been a part of it is relieving the administrative burdens of smaller firms and then freeing them up to do more business development and sales. Well, that, that would be a great thing for a lot of small business owners, I would imagine, given all the paperwork that we're all facing these days. Yes, yes. Um, you, you, you mentioned um, letting people go and obviously, and it, you know, in this, at this moment, we're in a, in, in a severe labor shortage. And how much do you think, um, the activity in the M&A market is really just a, a way to get new talent into a firm. 
Well, and I, I will tell you, I've been doing this for, for 20 years and I, uh, our, our firm does not do executive recruiting for the engineering industry, but I certainly network and talk to a good number of industry recruiters and also directors of HR uh, at client companies and they are pulling their hair out, Jerry, trying to find good people everywhere at, at, at every level, entry, mid-level. And it's been for a variety of reasons. We've had people kind of get burned out, try to look at different career paths. We've had boomers get off, off the ramp um, and doing some early uh, exit uh, and retirement planning themselves. So it's been a very fluid workforce over the last two years um, for, 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 for sure. So when you talk to CEOs today who are, are, are struggling with retention, struggling with recruiting, sometimes they think, well, M&A will just solve some of these problems. Well, um, because most of the industry is working at peak efficiency right now, it's not like they're finding firms with a bunch of principals or, or associates that have their hands in their pockets, you know, it's just so grateful that a larger firm is coming in to hand them a lot of work. So everybody's busy today, but when you talk to uh, presidents and principals of buyers, M&A is a scale game. And in, in engineering and professional services, there's the old adage, we need the work to get the people and the people to get the work. And uh, it is very hard today to grow some of these enterprises incrementally, organically, person by person. So for some companies today, if they have a growth strategy, whether that's to expand in Texas or to be more active in airport design, whatever it is, it's typically more impactful to make those through acquisitions where you can hire or, or retain and, 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 and grab 10, 25, 50, 100 people at once versus trying to do that incrementally over time, which is challenging today. Yeah, you mentioned um, the, the, the fluid workforce, which is putting it mildly. Uh, yes. <laughs> the great. Um, but what, what impact does that have on, uh, on the, on the M&A market? Uh, you know, I guess the, the work from home model is such, um, the hybrid model, and also um, the sense that employees have more power now than they have had in the past. What, what, how does that affect the M&A market? Well, it, it, it's interesting because I have clients that have been back in the office five days a week over a year ago. Um, and I have some clients that still have almost a, a 100% virtual model. So there's a lot of, there's a big country, a lot of different attitudes, a lot of different governance models on, on having people back in, in the office today. But some of this is evolving and changing. And I think we're going to start to see that become more um, acute here um, as, as the pandemic fades and people are ready to get back. We've seen Google and Twitter just recently kind of encourage, you saw this and announced uh, workforces coming back. Uh, here where, where I live in the Washington DC area, the federal government is starting to kind of turn that wheel again, having their workforce come back in earnest in the spring and summer. Um, so I, I, I think for parties that have put these transactions together, it's, it's, it's been kind of a non-event. I think everybody has, has had to work through these work from home models to some degree. Um, it's been remarkably fluid as everybody has been as productive and successful as they have in that. I will tell you um, in the last year, it's, it's made the integration process a little dicier. Um, when you acquire a company, sometimes you have everybody in a room and you'd like to be able to tout the acquisition and the benefits of the merger. Well, in some cases, if you couldn't have more than 10 or 12 or 25 people in a room for social distancing, that was hard to do. Um, so so I, I, I don't think, I think the virtual model to some degree is here to stay. It really hasn't impacted some of the 
um, upfront M&A courtship discussions. I think people have worked through this process very skillfully with integration from, from that perspective. Um, I do think uh, the pendulum has shifted from employers to employees in terms of that, that control where we have um, to where in an integration mindset, buyers have to be very careful in terms of touting the benefits, the um, promises and opportunities to staff today, because in such a tight labor market, they can go and jump ship to other companies that are very uh, eager to have them join their uh, workforce. Compare this to 2009, 2010, coming out of an industry, frankly, depression, where everybody was just happy to have their jobs after a merger and acquisition experience, or, or frankly, anywhere. So I think today the onus is on buyers to do smart, um, uh, smart integrations that are durable, uh, that, that take all of employees' attitudes and views into account, because you don't want to walk into this and six or 12 months later, half the firm is gone because you bungled the, the, the integration because people have a lot of choices today. So it is definitely an employee-based mindset today with M&A. On that point, is it on the seller to prepare his or her employees for this even before there's a buyer because as you say i mean they're the value within the firm if if they're not happy about the idea then then the seller's not going to get his his highest return well and that's a great point and um typically in this in a sale process the owners of an engineering firm in the courtship and and letter of intent or, or offer negotiations, typically keep the conversations quiet uh, until they have a good sense that the deal is going to be on a path to close. Um, other companies are different where the owners might have a more transparent model and they're open to select employees that we are exploring or entertaining the merger. And these are the benefits for it. So. It, it really depends on on uh, you know whether or not you you think you want to stir a beehive up and and, and get people agitated um, or, or excited about a potential murder and then the risk of it not going forward or not. So that's always a delicate type of discussion is kind of when you tell your employees how you tell them. Uh, certainly, you have to tell them before the transaction closes for a variety of of integration and due diligence purposes. Um, but you're exactly right. If 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 um, people are going to head to the exits, you know, imminently after closing because of a bungled integration from the buyer and seller, uh, that's not a good legacy event for the seller, and that's certainly a a um, deflating value proposition for the buyer. Well, one of the one of the trends that we've seen over the past several years has been the uh, the entry of the private equity investor into the into our industry. Um, do you? I think you mentioned in the survey in, in your class that um, there are 80 firms that have private equity investment in them. And do you, do you see that, that, that trend continuing? Or do you see it accelerating? Yeah, it, it has been phenomenal to watch this play out uh, over the last decade, but more acutely over the last uh, three or four years here, Jerry. And, and what, what's interesting is, is engineering firms broadly go through different trends in ownership models. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, it was really the advent of the ESOPs and a lot of uh, companies that have employee stock option plans, and they're still very popular in our industry, started taking on forming ESOPs. Um, in, in, the, in the 2000s decade, 
uh, we saw the uh, increased participation of a lot of foreign companies, international buyers to the US. So uh, firms from Canada, firms from the UK, firms from Australia came here. And that was typically an exit strategy for some firms to join forces as, as our um, workforce became more global. And I think now what, what we've seen is a kind of a, a, a financial engineering model of investors that have raised money, have raised capital, a lot of capital out there, they like the themes of our industry, infrastructure renewal, ESG. Those are popular investment trends that people can get behind. In addition to becoming more comfortable investing in professional service firms uh, where there's no hard assets, uh, unlike retail or manufacturing or energy, ours are elevator assets. And more and more companies are comfortable dealing with those type of companies today. So it has been interesting to watch um, and many companies, many venerable blue chip companies all up and down the ENR 500 have decided to join forces with these private equity groups for exit strategy purposes, but also for growth purposes. So your question is, yes, I see that continuing, although maybe not at the same pronounced level um, uh, and ramp up level that we've seen over the last three or four years. I think we'll see some of the companies that have um, taken private equity the last couple of years, look for exits themselves, whether they decide to sell to publicly traded firms or go public or maybe merge with others or sell to other private equity groups. Um, the, the other interesting angle to look at here is that we are now entering what I think is going to be a very um, uh, 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 high ramp up in the Fed's um, monetary policy tightening cycle. Um, Goldman Sachs was just predicting 11 rate hikes through the next 18 months. And a lot of these private equity deals thrive on leverage. So when you have cheap money, it's easy to borrow money, um, make your return on investment better for a lot of these companies. It doesn't take much for interest rates to, to kind of go up that path from a borrowing cost perspective when some of those return on investments can start to be a little more tenuous. So yes, I think the private equity model is here to stay. It's very intriguing. I could probably do another podcast just on this whole topic. Um, but I think it's going to be at a uh, lower volume than what we've seen the last couple of years. You mentioned um, ESOPs. And uh, in your program, you mentioned that, that, that a lot of uh, engineering firms are, are eschewing ESOPs. Why, why is that? Well, and, and you know, it's, it's interesting. We, we work with a lot of ESOP companies here, whether it's helping companies form ESOPs or doing their annual valuations uh, from an appraisal perspective here at ROG. Uh, and, and I just look at a number of companies that have had ESOPs in place who have decided to sell to strategic buyers or private equity buyers. So sometimes that ESOP from an ownership transition model was a good tool for the owners at some point in their life cycle, but maybe it's just not the right tool or the right capital structure for them today. And I also look at dozens and dozens of companies that would have been prime ESOP candidates from a size perspective, from a management perspective, that rather than doing an ESOP that they may have done 10 or 20 years ago, have now joined forces with private equity firms today. So while I think the ESOP model is still popular, it's still very attractive for a lot of companies that use that as a um, uh, retention and, and, and um, incentive tool for their uh, employee base, I think there's a group of engineering firms that have said it's not for us and we're going to go a different direction on our ownership. So um, 
it's it, it's going to be interesting to see how how that um, trend plays out over the next couple of years. Yeah, I would imagine a, a, a private equity deal is a lot simpler than putting together an ESOP. Well, it um, you know both transactions have their their elements of of simplicity and elements of complexity, um, and both are very different. Um, you know the, the 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 ESOP is a benefit tool that all the staff can participate in, from the CEO down to the front desk manager. It is a wide participative model that is used for an employee benefit and retirement tool. The the private equity is more investor-oriented, growth-oriented. Um, it's it's more selective in which owners are able to participate in the upside potential. I think it definitely has more risk elements to that. There, uh, you're you're partnering with with outsiders to your firm, where the ESOP it's still the same management team in place. So so similar, but also to some degree diametrically opposed to each other. Um. Yeah, one just uh, one other thing you mentioned that that in your program that uh, that struck me was that you said that you're seeing a lot more first time buyers or infrequent buyers coming into the market. What what's what do you think is driving that? Well, you know, um, mergers and acquisitions, regardless of the sector, healthcare, software. Uh, oil and gas, engineering tend to go through waves. Um, and when we have waves that are, are, are ebbing and waves that are frenetic, we see a lot of different participants in that, in that wave. Um, so certainly when we've seen so much M&A activity over the last two years here, it tends to draw out companies uh, that were on the sidelines of considering doing acquisitions, but now feel that they have the confidence they have the capital, they might have the size, and generally industry conditions are very favorable to go ahead and do that. Um, so we have been involved with transactions with companies where it has been their first deal or maybe their first deal in a long time or under a new management team. Um, and they've embraced that um, a tool to help them grow do that. So, it, it, you know, it, um, like, like I said, each year there's going to be different types of, of buyer participants, whether they're strategic buyers or international buyers or small buyers or first time buyers. But we tend to see in these periods when they get busy um, and, and CEOs and presidents look at their competitors and say, oh, I see that they're buying a firm or they're buying a firm. Maybe we should consider doing that, too. So you tend to see other groups jump in the pool, too. Do you also represent um, firms that are selling? We, we 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 do yes, and uh, roughly about half of our engagements are working with with strategic uh, or financial buyers, and the other half are with sellers. And I will tell you there, um, the this this long M and A wave of of consolidation in our in our industry, and and we've seen twenty five hundred AE firms sell over this last decade. It's, it's almost been like, I, I, I refer to it as beach erosion. It's, it's something where you, you don't maybe necessarily notice it week by week or year by year, but you kind of step back over time. And you're like, wow, remember they used to be here or they used to be here or, or, or that name. Um, and they're not necessarily gone. They're just part of other groups now. Um, and I think to some degree what seller's motivation today has been a, a, a arc or overlay of, of the baby boomers who have, been so impactful um, in our country and in our industry who started companies. But if you look at that of, of their ages, generally born from 46 to 64, they're in their, you know, that that last third are a lot of our clients today. They're they're in their late 50s, early 60s. 
they've had a great run over the last uh, uh, 10 or 20 years, but they're looking to uh, monetize their company, um, uh, uh, sell their stake in their company. Oftentimes it's because they're, they're unable to uh, transition it to a next generation of employee owners, younger owners underneath them. So, um, and, and also I think there's, there's a competitive element there. They see a lot of consolidation. They see big getting bigger. And I think for, for many of them, it's joining forces with a larger company for scale and survivability. So, so sellers, they've had a good run. Um, they, they have strong balance sheets. They have strong profitability, like we talked about. The valuations are there um, and the, the investment thesis is there. Um, and they're not getting any younger. Uh, so, so I think from that perspective, it has been a good market to be a seller. And I, and I will also add one, one kind of caveat on that is that many thought that as we see changes in administrations that perhaps tax rates were going to raise, um, sort of rise last year, including the capital gains rate tax. So there were a number of firms that thought, well, boy, I better you know, rush to the exits and sell now because you know, if I sell next year, my tax rates might go up if, if I sell my company. Well, public policy has been so much fluid on a lot of these budget and tax issues where it's, it's actually hasn't really manifested itself that way. I don't know where this year will, will happen, where, where, where the dice will fall in that regard. Um, but, but that was at least some point a year ago, a factor for some owners, which is not really a factor today. As a, as a final question, just, uh, you know, we, for our listeners, if, if I, if I were to, if I were an owner of a firm, say $10 million in revenue, annual revenue, maybe 25 staff, what steps would you recommend that I take to, to maximize the sale of my firm? Well, that's a good last question to, to end on. And I appreciate that. And, and, you know, for a lot of owners we talk to today, there are the valuation aspects of the sale and the non-valuation aspects of the sale. And I, and I don't want to get too altruistic here. I understand that money and economics and valuation is very important in this. But many owners today we talk to, there are other legacy driving issues of things that they are also considering. Um, many owners are burned out today as well from this two-year experience. They're looking to tap into the resources of a larger firm. They or their spouse or a child might have health issues. Uh, they're, 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 there's a lot of things that, that come into um, selling and exiting a business beyond the dollars. But that being said, I, I think owners, uh, owner or owner groups, partnership groups really have to understand and what are their objectives in a, in a sale. Um, if, if you are looking to maximize the price of it, I, I think having more options helps. Talking to additional suitors, not just one, to understand market positioning, market um, attractiveness, how others value you is, is important because not all buyers are going to value a particular opportunity the, 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 the same way. So if you're gonna go out to market, it pays to talk to a range of buyers. Um, so where you understand where you might fit in from a cultural perspective, a management role perspective, of a, a, an employee and client fit perspective, but also ones that hopefully um, view it synergistically and strategically that will offer you the highest value. Okay, great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. This was fun. Thank you for having me today. And you've been listening to the Engineering Influence Podcast presented by the American Council of Engineering Companies. Thanks for listening.